darkness. So in the darkness, I come out and I go, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages. Hello, and welcome back to Live Through That. We're finally back after a little bit of a hiatus. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and we have a lot of great episodes coming up, including John King from Gang of Four, Martha Davis from The Motels, Kate Schellenbach from Luscious Jackson, and so many more. But first, this is our special episode on the B-52s. I guess that if you're listening to this podcast, chances are that the B-52s are most likely one of your favorite bands. I mean, what's not to love? The excellent musicianship, the fun attitude, Rock Lobster, Love Shack, 52 Girls, I could go on and on. In 2022, the band announced that they would no longer be a touring act after they wrapped up their current tour. Their final show was in their hometown of Athens, Georgia on January 10th, 2023, and it was packed with longtime friends and fans of the band. This episode, we're doing something a little differently, and we're talking to some folks who were at the show to get their recollections and memories of one of the best party bands around. The fan community, and especially the fans in Athens, Georgia, are such a strong part of the band that it only made sense to talk to these folks. Owen Scott was an old friend of the band. In fact, he was at the famous Chinese restaurant where the B-52s first formed. He was very nearly a member of the band as well. His stories of those early days seem like a great place to start this episode. I met Ricky and Keith in high school. I was uh, a year ahead of Ricky and two years ahead of Keith. And Cindy, of course, was Ricky's kid sister, who was a little younger. She was in middle school at the time. So um, this was in probably 1968. And it was at that time that, you know, the countercultural revolution was going on. And it had hit Athens, um, uh, especially in the art school uh, of the University of Georgia. And, you know, being a university town, it was somewhat plugged into, you know, cultural ongoing events. But um, I had a friend who was a friend of one of my sisters, older person who uh, went to art school and we stayed friends. So he introduced me to um, Jim Herbert, who's a pretty well-known filmmaker. He, he filmed some of the REM's videos and so forth, but, you know, he's a filmmaker and artist. So I had gravitated towards that countercultural scene and was fortunate to hook up with those people since I was only a kid. Um, and I was a guitar player, still am actually. So I was aspiring to be a rock and roll star. I was one of the first people to have long hair at our high school, Athens High School. And so people who were drawn to the, the counterculture scene gravitated together. And um, so Keith and Ricky and I became part of a set of people. Um, another important person that I will mention is Roy Bell. I don't know if uh, you've tried to get in contact with Roy, but Roy was Ricky's best friend from probably middle school. So we all became friends and hung out together. And I introduced them to Jim Herbert and that whole scene. Ricky and Keith had not come out at that point in time. And my older friend uh, named Jeremy Ayers, who another well-known Athens eccentric who recently passed away. I introduced them to Jeremy and his friends. So it, I think it sort of helped them in the process of eventually coming out. 
uh, Ricky and Keith and I um, played some music together. I found out that Keith was a drummer and he had this lovely gold set of Ludwig drums. So, uh, and Ricky was, uh, played acoustic guitar a lot, but I recruited him as a bass player. So um, we kind of played around and didn't really have a, you know, a working band or anything, but we did play some local events um, uh, like a Unitarian church Christmas service one time. And then um, when I graduated from Athens High in 1970, we rented a house and formed a band um, with another kid who was from South Georgia named Pete Love. And Pete was a real cute guy and he played a, a Paisley Telecaster and very talented kid. So we all had a little band there um, at the uh, summer and fall of 1970. And um, we had trouble coming up with a name, but I came up with Black Narcissus. So that was kind of our name. The band never really gelled um, musically. You know, we had this idea we might, we'd be the next Beatles. Um, well, unfortunately that didn't happen. And at the end of uh, the fall, Pete dropped out of college and went back to South Georgia and the band broke up. So I was in college at the time and I think Ricky and Keith dropped out and were doing various things. At one point they went to Europe, but uh, several years later, there was a, a group of friends, it was basically the Deadbeat Club, which included Kate Pearson, who had moved into Athens from New Jersey. She was married to an English guy at the time who was a bicycle mechanic. They had traveled around Europe and so forth. So they gravitated to Athens and became part of the, the Deadbeat Club group that included Jeremy and uh, Fred. I met Fred, who also came to Georgia from uh, New Jersey. So there was a whole group of people that were just eccentrics who would like to go out to bars that had music or holiday inns, you know, wherever there was some music playing and drink and dance and have a good time and just kind of be flamboyant. And during that period, Kate broke up with her husband. She was a free spirit for a while. And then she and I eventually uh, got into a relationship. So that was the scene then. She had her little shack in the country which is not the love shack, I don't think, but some people mistook it for that. But it was like a little farmhouse with a goat. And uh, Kate was you know, living a very kind of um, rustic lifestyle out there. And you know, the other members of the group had various little odd jobs and so forth. So um, that was the, a, you know, a period of a couple of years. And then uh, eventually there was the famous incident, which is well-documented, you've probably read about it, where uh, my parents were out of town and I had their car. I had some musical equipment um, down in my basement from bands I'd been playing in. But at that point in time, I'd quit playing in bands. I decided I wasn't gonna be a rock star and I was, was going to school and uh, major in psychology. This one evening, Fred and Kate and Cindy uh, and Keith and I decided we'd go out to a Chinese restaurant, Hunan's, and we didn't have a lot of money, so we just ordered some tropical drinks, Mai Tais and Pina Coladas and so forth, you know, the kinds of little umbrellas in them. And we had a nice time out. And then afterwards, uh, we went back to my house and they suggested, one of them suggested, let's go down and play some music. And I was, I didn't really want to do that because I'd sort of, you know, decided that I didn't, I was going to go in that other direction. But I said, you guys go ahead and I'll just stay upstairs. And so, um, they went down and pretty soon I started hearing this music and it sounded pretty good. And 
Um, what uh, I remember about it is I remember hearing Fred saying, buzz, 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 killer bees, and a nice rhythm going. And so I thought to myself, wow, they sound pretty good. You know, that, that, that has some potential. So that was actually the first time the band got together. So they formed at my parents' house. I was never part of the band. I didn't want to be part of the band. I felt like, you know, they had great chemistry. So that was, uh, you know, I was going in one direction and they were going in another direction. During my first year of graduate school, they had gone up to New York and had auditioned by playing some tapes and got gigs immediately um, at Max's Kansas City and CBGB's, you know, really pretty, you know, hot venues. So um, in the fall sometime, I drove up to New York and heard them playing at CBGB's. So that was really the first time I heard the original lineup. And, you know, they were great. They were, they were fabulous. They were on a bill with the Dead Boys. So um, that was a, a neat experience. So after that, Kate and I uh, ended, ended that relationship as, as a couple, but we remained friends. And um, I ended up meeting somebody else and getting married in a couple of years. So uh, when, when I married my wife, whom I'm still married to, um, the B-52s sent me a little color TV set as a wedding present, which was our TV for the next three or four years till we you know, could afford another one. So that was kind of the, uh, that's an overview of um, the early days uh, of, um, of the B-52s and my relationship with them. After being witness to the band's formation, there was no way Owen wasn't not going to go to that final show in Athens. You know, as you can imagine, um, having been there at the beginning, uh, even though I, you know, I live here in Louisiana, I wasn't going to miss being there at the end as well. The, the B-52s, as is well known, have pretty much a cult following and you know, people just love them. So there was a big crowd, a lot of people there waiting to be let in the, uh, for the concert. People dressed up as lobsters, you know, people with beehive haircuts, you know, people in you know, 60s go-go outfits. So it was, it was a, a very uh, upbeat, you know, electric atmosphere going into the concert. DJ Cummerbund opened the Athens show. He's been a frequent opener for the band, and being asked to perform at their final gig was kind of a homecoming for him, too. His first ever concert was the B-52s on their stop at Jones Beach in Long Island in 1992. So it all started years ago. I want to say 2018. Uh, 2018, I put out a uh, mashup record, not record, sorry, mashup song um, called Detroit Rock Lobster. <laughs> It went viral, and the record label uh, that the B-52s are under, Crush Music, um, their artist manager heard it and loved it and invited us to the show in Central Park. By us, I mean me and my manager. And we went to the show in Central Park, and we had a blast, and, you know, we kept we kept up uh, relations, you know. We kept... Uh, we kept making sure we were in touch. You know, I had another hit that uh, called Shrexicula, and that was obviously with the B-52s, and that won a VMA. 
And from there, they invited us to play the show in Seattle. And then from there, they kind of just said, welcome to the tour. Absolutely. I mean, going back to the hometown, where it all started, everything like that. I mean, the crowd, you know, it wasn't just people that were there that were local or, you know, there were people that flew in from other states, like across the country that were there to celebrate this band. And I I fed off of that. I fed off of that and I was bopping around the stage like crazy. You could feel it. You could feel not only the, uh, the, the room being tense, but you can feel the room being, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Maybe joyous would be the right word or, or the excitement knowing that here's where it started. Here's where the touring ending and to just be there is was was an amazing experience the emotion you know that's where it all stems from the emotion of that show compared to the other shows was like like i just said tears of joy and tears of sadness at the same time so you know not um not per se the set list per se the people behind the scenes which are amazing people by the way Um, so not only the, you know, the people behind the scenes, the people in front of the house, the people everywhere, it's just the emotion that the, the waves of emotion that went through that crowd and through the band and through, um, like I said, the backstage crew, the front of house crew, it was just to soak it all in. I really had to like stand there for a minute and just really look around and realize where I was at that moment. Calvin Orlando Smith was born and raised in Athens. In fact, he's the famous son of Athens. A graduate of UGA, as well as Oxford and Cambridge, he's performed on Broadway and around the globe. He met Kate around 1983, and they have been friends ever since. Calvin was given the honor of introducing the band at the Classic Center. Kate and I, you know, because I've been blessed to be on the road. At one point, I was on the road doing um, the national tour of Evita, the seventh national tour of Valerie Perry and John Herrera. Uh, she wanted me to be in Shiny Happy People, but I wasn't in town. She wanted me to be in um, uh, the Deadbeat Club. I wasn't in town. I was out uh, with a tour of Music Man. <laughs> so it never worked out. And then a few years ago, she wanted me to come to Athens to do the 40th anniversary uh, uh, um, introduction. And I, I had just moved out here and I just, you know, wasn't in a great place to want to go traveling. And so I begged off. I said, you know, I, you know I'm just... Uh, I had just gotten a new roommate. The last roommate I had it was not a, a kind situation. So I was recovering from just, you know, the shock of having to deal with other uh, people and their personalities. And so I didn't feel great to come to Athens, but I regretted it every since. I was like, damn it, Calvin, this was an opportunity. She wanted you to do this. And for some stupid reason, you begged off. So when this happened with the last tour, she brought it up again. I said, I absolutely am going to do it. And see, I flew in to do it uh, when it was originally scheduled in November, but uh, Kate got strep throat and she had to, you know, they had to reschedule. And um, the moment I found out that, you know, she needed rest, I immediately called her within seconds and let her know that it was the absolute 
right thing for her to do that for her to go home and get rested because what happened in that moment was they had we had all been off because of the pandemic and they jump into a tour and these things are grueling especially when when pandemic i mean when uh covid is in the air and you know you haven't been in uh, traveling like that because of the hiatus uh, or you know the nightmare that was COVID, so I it was very reasonable for very tired and very vocally strained at that point. I said, no, 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 you are to go home and rest and get ready and have a a, a grand evening. And as a friend, I could hear from her voice that she felt so because she's so giving that she had such a relief that you know people will be able to understand. It's like understand they want you to be the queen that you are. <laughs> Go home and rest yourself and bring yourself to them after you've been, you know, saw, you know, cared for and, and brought to the place of your powers. And she was like, oh, I just feel so much. So, I just felt so bad having the cop cancel the show. It's like, are you kidding me? So anyway, I had to fly back to, uh, to uh, the West Coast because of my work schedule. But then because of all the missed opportunities, I flew back and I did it. So what did Calvin end up saying in his introduction? Well, it was very short. I gave myself a minute. And as we talked about it for a long time, it had to be the right thing. And I don't know if you haven't seen it, but if you can go to my page, you can watch it. It's all about 28 seconds. What I do is I give the audience several uh, crescendos. Once you're hit, then you get out. So I, I edited it on the spot where I was going to give myself just a few more seconds. It was the right time to leave. And what I said was, I came out, no one was recording because they didn't know I was coming out, but this is what set it up. Uh, the University of Georgia that day won its second national championship. So I wore my iconic mortarboard from the University of Georgia when I graduated uh, 23 years ago in 2000. And, you know, it's very, you know, a bachelor's degree is something that's really it brings a great deal of honor for me because these things were very hard to get. I, uh, what am I talking about? My bachelor's degree? Oh, I wore my mortarboard, which they would know what it is because it's black. It's got a big white top tassel with a gold, big gold disc. So everyone knew that in that area because it's the University of Georgia knows that's the mortarboard and tassel for the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences. So in the darkness, I come out and I go, ladies and gentlemen and children of all ages. And the, so the lights are kind of like, what's going on? And I say, uh, glory, glory to old George. I'm in a spotlight right now. And that's the beginning of the battle cry for the university. Glory, glory to Georgia. So I went, glory, glory to Georgia. Pointing with my gloved hands, my tasseled, and I was wearing my robes from Cambridge. I graduated from Cambridge, finishing my bachelor's degree at Oxford, but I graduated from Cambridge. <laughs> so, so all these people knew all of this, the details of what I'm telling you. It's like, that's Calvin. He graduated from Cambridge, those robes that he's grabbed. Those are his robes from Cambridge and that mortar boards for the University of Georgia because we just won our second national championship. So you really had to know what was going on in the room and the people in the community to go, wow, this is great. He's wearing the stuff. He's celebrating our national championship. And then in my 28 seconds, I said, 16, I said, listen, exactly 16,667 days ago, a new sound was born right here in the classic city. And people say, yeah, the classic city. I said, and that, this new wave of music soon swept across the entire planet to bounce off satellites and into deep space. I'm tumbling through time like Neil Armstrong. And I go, and now. Without any further ado, I shall introduce to some and present to others the Grammy Award-nominated, MTV Award-winning, Athens' own B-52s! They're all straight.
and I sweep off the stage and my Cambridge road tripping because I didn't realize that the a light system was taped down. So I trip and I didn't fall. I, I, I do comedy with it. I recover. I open out. I do a kick and I go off stage. Liesl Daniel has been a fan of the B-52s for over 30 years now, and she runs the B's Facebook fan group called The Buzz. She's been to over 100 shows from the band, and it was a must to go see the final show in Athens. Well, I guess if if you're the B-52s and you're going to end your your career, you're going to end it in Athens where it started. They didn't announce the Athens show straight off the bat. The last shows uh, on their tour were actually three shows in Atlanta. So people were thinking, oh, that's so close that they should add Athens. And they did after many months. So it was it was a little bit of a last minute addition. But but they didn't make it easy because the final Atlanta shows were on a Friday, Saturday and a Sunday. You could easily just make a long weekend of it, fly into town get to the venue, see the show, see two shows, see three shows, go back home. And it was, it, it is fairly easy for Athens it was on a Tuesday. It was two days after the last Atlanta show. So you were going to have to commit some time, some time to just go to that show. And, and Athens is not an, an easy Uber ride from Atlanta, you're talking, you will be making a trek. It's not, it's not something that you can just catch a bus to, to get there. So it, it required effort in order for you to go to the Athens show. Um, the tickets, of course, anytime a B-52 show is announced, um, the band always gives us the pre-sale codes and it was chaotic as usual. There was the typical, what does this row mean? What does it mean by no by standing room only? What does it mean by platinum tickets? Um, so that it, it, I was grateful that the tickets went on sale on a day that I decided to work remotely at home because there would have been no way that I could have been able to hide the fact that I was trying to to get these tickets if I were at work. So uh, that turned out pretty well. Um, and I do think it sold out pretty quickly. Uh, I think there were a lot of band friends who wanted to see them. So I, I think that a lot of the friends from Athens were able to get their tickets and the fans were able to get their tickets too. There was the little... There was a little hitch where this show was supposed to be in November, but on the eve of the first Atlanta shows, Kate got strep throat and they had to cancel all of the shows and, and punt it over. And that was kind of, that was not only disappointing, it was, it was, you had this great buildup and we know that Kate is not going to cancel a show if she doesn't, if she doesn't have to, she has gone on sick and she has played sick and you never know, you would never know it, but you knew it was serious when they decided to just cancel the show. So there was a big disappointment about that. And there was also a feeling of like, 
there are people here who flew in from other countries, other from across the country, from England, from Australia. What what are they going to do? So it it kind of left it hanging. But when the, the the actual show, when we when the day came, it was just a lot of um, it was just a lot of anticipation, and it was a lot of um, it was a lot of joy. There was not you would think that it, there would be a lot of nostalgia, but I guess it was nostalgia in a good way, not where you're kind of reminiscing and. Um, remorseful or yearning, but it was kind of like rediscovering, reliving, reminiscing all all the old memories. So that was, um, there was a lot of that feeling at, at the show. I want to say that it, there was a lot of celebration. When you think of something that's final, you think that there's going to be a lot of sadness or like a coming to an end and it's wrapping up and it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't get that feeling of, oh my gosh, this is final. This is going to be gone. Even though this is the last tour, it was a lot of, like I mentioned before, reminiscing and celebrating. Um, you know, the band is, is so unique. And I think that everyone can relate to that in one way or the other. So, um, the atmosphere in the venue was excitement and everybody seemed to want to celebrate. Um, everybody reacted real well to all of the songs. Um, to be honest, it was really hard for me to get a gauge of what, how the rest of the venue was feeling because this was the last show. I was going to be right up at the front of the stage. So, you know, we got there as soon as the doors opened, we staked our place. We didn't leave. We stood there and that was, that was, that was our moment. It was, we were going to really, we were going to live this show from the very front of the stage and, and that's what we did. So it was difficult to, to really gauge other people's excitement. You could see the people, the other people around you in the pit and you could see them dancing and, and enjoying themselves. But, um, Personally, I was really focused on on my general area just because I was, you know, taking it all in. Um, I just wanted to be there at at the front and just have this moment for the last time. Vicky Solipandi is a longtime fan and initially traveled from her home in Boston to their last show in Atlanta, which was canceled because of Kate's illness. It all worked out great, though, for her in the end as she was able to come back in January for the final show in Athens. November was my birthday weekend, and those Atlanta shows happened to coincide with my birthday. I originally wasn't even going to go to Athens because I had booked my return flight um, before the Athens show was announced. So I got to Atlanta, and they postponed the shows, which is a bummer, but it ended up working out because, I mean, I got to see Magna Pop and Pylon on my birthday, so that was cool. And it wasn't too much of a hassle to schedule things back for January. I mean, my first B-52 show was in Detroit. It, Cindy Wilson wasn't actually in the band then. It was the Good Stuff tour with um, Julie Cruz. Well, we were in the pit, so I mean, we were surrounded by pretty hardcore fans. Everyone was excited to see them because they knew that was the last show of the tour. 
I mean, the Atlanta shows were great too, but I mean, it did feel kind of like an end of the tour, end of the line show. I mean, Keith came out at the end, which is really nice. I mean, I've been a fan for so long. I mean, realistically, I mean, they're all getting up there in age. I mean, all the good things have to come to an end. I mean, they still have that residency in Vegas, which is good for them. But I mean, I know it's not going to be like I can see them at least once a year on tour because they aren't touring. They won't. They probably won't tour. I mean, they've been one of my favorite bands. I mean, you can't deny their importance to, I mean, a lot of music I like right now, their influence. Lynn Hardman is an Athens native and currently owns Southern Waterbeds and Futons. He's been friends with the band since high school and wouldn't have missed their final show. I knew Ricky and Keith back in high school, and that was my first connection with them. Of course, that was way, way, way pre-B-52. I mean, they, that wasn't even a, a dream on the horizon then. So I guess that's my first connection with them. I, didn't, I don't remember house parties, but I do remember um, going to what I thought was their first big show here in town, which was at the Georgia Theater. And that would have been in um, May of 1978. Now, now, legend has it, and I don't know how true this is. It makes for a great story, but legend has it. They actually paid to play there because they couldn't get the gig there. And the Georgia Theater had really just sort of opened up as a uh, music venue sporadically, um, you know, sporadic shows monthly. It wasn't an every night venue. So that's the first time I saw the B-52s. And um, I always like to keep this in the back of my mind. I wasn't a fan when I went, but I was most certainly a fan when I came away. And I kind of like the story because um, I, I went primarily to see Ricky and Keith. Uh, I, I figured I owed them that to go see them, but I didn't. I, I didn't like Rock Lobster for number one. I didn't care for the song. I didn't get the thrift clothes uh, motif, if you will, and um, I really just wasn't into them. And I remember going into the Georgia Theater and we're going up the stairs, and Keith was coming down from the balcony, and I ran into him. And I remember talking to him for a minute and just telling him, I said, well, you know, this will be the first time ever seeing the B-52s. And I I think I was a little embarrassed or something. Um, But then the story goes on and the concert starts. Fortunately, I had great seats. We were about three or four four rows back uh, in the Georgia Theater. And, of course, that was back in the day when it still had seating. I mean, it was really a, uh, a movie theater then. And there was just something about the music. It was fantastic. And it just made you want to get up and dance, which it still does. But uh, it was just a real revelation, I suppose. So from that point on, I really was a B-52s fan. So I I caught them from time to time throughout the years. It was like the bookend on that particular concert, if you will. And you just had to. You want to see them that last time. 
Um, and then I think at that point in time, we didn't heard that it may not necessarily be their last show. Um, they're going to do the Vegas re- residency and perhaps, perhaps someone off shows. Uh, but really, that's beside the point. I mean, I just like the band. I wanted to see them. I saw them the last couple of times they were here. And, and I'm going to tell you what, I'm glad I didn't miss this one. It was to die for. It was, they were really good. I mean, they were really, really good. And if there's anything that I would want to get over on this podcast, it would be the fact how good they sounded live. The sound was good in the Classic Center. And um, it was just near perfection. I think on some of the material, either the ticket subs or the poster, there was a small lettering that said, play it loud. And they did. And they put up a little sign, a little um, on the backdrop there that said, turn off the phones and have fun dancing. And I think the majority of the people did that. I think they turned the phones off and really got into it. Now, I must admit, it, towards the end of the show, I had to pull my phone out and sneak a pic. But uh, I didn't take any during the show. And I think a lot of people did put their phones up. And it just uh, it, it really enhanced the show a lot. It... it um, it was fun. That's number one. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but they did play it loud. And I remember thinking about about halfway through the show about how good they sounded and how rocking they sounded. I mean, the, the rhythm section was something else and the drums were just pounding and so was the bass. And it was really just creating a wonderful backdrop for this band to come out and perform. I mean... You talk about professional, and I couldn't help but stop and think back to that first show that I went to, and that was 45 years ago, and they they weren't just this little tacky dance band from Athens, Georgia. I mean, they were a professional powerhouse on that stage that night. It was just incredibly good. And I thought about this during the show. I'm looking at the band up there, and we're all senior citizens and still rocking i mean you gotta love it i mean you just wouldn't have dreamed that back in the day when you're a teenager you'd still be rocking out and that's basically what we were doing you know it was very uh, heartfelt and very touching uh, i mean you could tell that they loved their fans and it was it's a mutual feeling and right at the end of the show and i'm sure you've well, you may have seen my video of it. It's the only thing I took a video of. They they dropped a banner down, and that and when they did, of course, a, a humongous amount of confetti came down as well, and a big sign read, "We love you, thank you for 45 years uh, of love and support," and it said, "Cindy, Kate, Fred, Keith, and Ricky," and that was just quite moving and. Uh, and, of course, you know, Keith came out. He didn't perform, but uh, during that particular segment, and this is right at the very end. This was, was right after Rock Lobster. Uh, Keith, Keith came out and took a bow. Now, he didn't say anything, didn't take the microphone, but I think everybody got a big kick out of seeing Keith in town. And the one of the last things that was said, um, and it's on my little video, that it's hard to hear, but Kate says, it's been fabulous, but it's not over yet. And then you, Fred shouted out, see you in Vegas. 
Vanessa Briscoe Hay was the vocalist for Pylon, one of the first wave of Athens bands that came up around the same time as the B-52s. The Bs were an important part in helping get Pylon off the ground. We, we got to the Classic Center in Athens, which is probably um, the large, largest venue we have that is in the city. Uh, I'm not sure how many it, it holds, maybe 4,000 or something. Uh, you can look. People had come in from everywhere. They were from, you know, all over the country, some from other countries, and uh, they were dressed up. I mean, I haven't seen an audience like that in ages. People were just putting on their sequins and their color fun furs, and they had their hair up in beehives, and, you know, the guys were wearing, you know, beautiful um, multicolor suits and sequins and um, all these different colors of hair and people were just there to have a blast, to have a party. And I had the best time. It was like, I mean, I don't know how you condense like 45 years of your performances into one performance, but uh, they managed to cover quite a bit of ground in their uh, you know, in their set list all through the, you know, years there. They also played a few songs I hadn't heard in years, like Junebug, which I like a lot. And uh, the backing band was incredible. And then uh, at the end of uh, their set, they dedicated the last song to uh, Ort, who was an old friend of the band, and also uh, Fred Schneider's William Martin Carlton III, um, he he had had a store called Ort's Aldi's, and he was a wonderful town character. He's the guy in uh, Athens, Georgia, Inside Out, who's the narrator. And Fred had made sure that he could watch the show with a live feed from his room. And they dedicated the last song, uh, Rock Lobster, to him. And then uh, Keith Strickland came out and took a uh, a bow, and everybody was just over the moon to see him because uh, nobody had seen him in you know several years here, uh, and he was just as beautiful as ever. You know, he didn't play with them, but everybody was just over the moon to just see him. Well, I think uh, the B-52s, a lot of people, you know, who haven't been here all along, they don't realize how important they were especially to Southerners who felt bit of outsiders or different or queer or gay or, or whatever. They made it okay to just be yourself. I mean, you know, it was okay to just be yourself and have fun. And that giving permission by their very existence, I mean, is just meant so long, you know, so much the entire world. I mean, they're all about love and having fun and being good to the environment and um, being tolerant. So uh, why they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I have no idea. And lastly, we have this from Vic Varney. Athens has lots of favorite sons, but Vic is one of mine. Former singer-songwriter of the Tone Tones and the Method Actors, Vic sent along this voice memo to me that got this whole episode started. 
The B-52s played their last show as a touring band last night at the Civic Center in Athens. The night before, the Georgia Bulldogs repeated as national champions by giving TCU the biggest butt whooping in 1,556 bowl games since 1902. And I was floating on the day of the show, and I floated all night through it. The event was wonderful. They played great. They sounded great. And it was an especially great night for the Old Faithful, of whom I consider myself a charter member, having only missed one gig they ever played in Athens. In fact, my first band, the Tone Tones, played its first show opening for them on their last club date in Athens on Groundhog's Day in 1979 at the Georgia Theater. I saw a number of people I will almost certainly never be in the same room with again ever. I enjoy talking to people who seem to know me that I didn't know from Adam, or for that matter, Eve. I enjoy Dana Downs enjoying her life, as she always does and always will. I met a beautiful woman from Nashville. The B-52s are one of those rare things that come around only a few times in a century. Louis Armstrong, the Beatles, Pearl Bailey, something in which there is simply no badness, something that's always about pure joy. If they ever do another record, I hope they call it happiness. They've been criticized for not having greatly progressed musically over the course of a long career, but that's because they never needed to. They had a code from day one and stuck to it. Make everything about fun, make everything dance, and somehow do it in a way that's sophisticated and undumb and full of levity without being L-I-T-E. Most importantly, their sound was immediately distinct, driving and charismatic and irresistibly danceable. In that last regard, you can't overestimate Ricky Wilson's role. He left a huge footprint in that band's very particular sound, and it's a sound that no one has ever really copied. He has always been my favorite rock guitarist, and Greg Surin, the fellow playing guitar now in the band, has nailed that sound better than anyone since Ricky's crushing, untimely passing in 1985. After, I sh after the show, I told him I didn't throw around compliments lightly when it came to comparing anyone to Ricky, and he seemed moved, even making a point of finding me later and thanking me. They played in front of a huge movie screen, which played a mashup of stuff you'd expect, edited to match each song, clips from 1950s B-movie <laughs> sci-fis, a bonanza of beach blanket bingo, and especially toward the end of the set, old footage of the band, which was thrilling, perhaps especially so for those of us who were in the audience in some of the shows on display. The passages, which included Ricky, were almost unbearably moving. As far as Athens goes, they set the mold. They got it the rightest, the mostest right out of the gate and never veered. I've said on many occasions, 
and to the considerable annoyance of some that at least in one sense they're the only real Athens band. By which I mean that they are the only band who came right out of a very particular milieu, reflected it in a deeply true and original way, and that every band after them was in some way a reflection of their interpretation of that culture. In other words, a translation of an interpretation. For example, the Glands, the Method Actors, Vic Chestnut, R.E.M., to name a few of many. These are artists making music which reflect more about themselves than anything about Athens per se, although to be fair, all the bands that grow up in Athens reflect Athens' music culture in some way or other, and of course, have been changed by having lived here. You couldn't have played in any of the many iterations of the 40 Watt, or especially Tyrone's, without being affected by it. When I heard Rome, the greatest dance song ever done by a white band, I was taken back to Adrian's wedding reception in Luxembourg and dancing like a maniac. In fact, many times I've been in many different parts of the world, heard a B-52 song on the radio or in a bar or in a restaurant and immediately felt like I was home and thinking, these are my people. We come in peace, bearing dance. How great is it that they are the banner carriers of Athens? Obviously, REM reached greater heights in the fame-o-meter and absolutely earned it. But the bees still carry the day in terms of defining Athenaity. And that's great. Like, it's great how lucky for, it was for me as a kid to come up on the Beatles. And how appropriate that after the show, the song played on the PA as everyone was leaving was All You Need Is Love. When you get down to it, those two bands are basically about that, about love. I dance to every song. Longtime friend to the band, Ord Carlton, said of them in the famous 1986 documentary Athens GA Inside Out that the B 52 started the music scene as we think of it. He was so special to the band that at the final show, they dedicated the song Rock Lobster to him, and he was able to watch as they had a live stream installed in his hospital room so that he could watch the show. He passed away less than two weeks later, and we'd like to dedicate this episode of the podcast to his memory. Thank you to everyone for taking the time to share your stories. I also want to thank the band Jupe Jupe for creating our brand new theme song. You can find out more about their new album at jupejupemusic.com. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my books, Live Through That and 80s Redux, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please subscribe so that you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 